This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. So thanks everybody for joining us for another episode of Doing Translational Research. My name is Chris Wildeman and I'm the director of the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research. I'm here today with Bethany Ogiletto, who's an assistant professor of human development here at Cornell University. So um, I just butchered your last name. So so can you give me the the appropriate pronunciation so folks listening to this will know it and not embarrass themselves the way I just did? You're not embarrassed at all. You actually said it the way we say it in the United States. And in Finland, where the name is from, it is pronounced Oileto. So you can choose Ojaleto or Oileto. I'll choose the one where I where I won't butcher it. So <laughs> thank you for the thanks so much for the clarification. Of so course. Let's just jump into it. Um, how would you summarize sort of your main research interest? Like what? Uh, uh, put sort of another way, what are the big questions that your research is trying to address? There's no bigger question in my mind than the question of how to relate with our environments. Um, The globe is in distress right now as a result of our current lifestyles. So I think many people around the globe are working on the problem of how we can transform our interactions with the natural world. And I'm working on one very particular element of that larger question, um, which concerns how we conceptualize the natural world and how that determines the the relationships that we consider possible with other life forms. And what are, maybe what are sort of two or three different ways that very different groups of people would conceptualize that, just to sort of orient those of us who are totally naive to, to how that could be done? Sure. So, by way of background, I have been doing my research in an indigenous community, uh, the Nobe community of Panama, for the past eight years now. And I do a lot of comparative work, so I will spend time in the village, in the field, learn as much as I can, design studies, and then run those studies with both indigenous Nobe participants in Panama, but also... Um, what we think of as standard Western participants here in the United States or in Switzerland or in various places. So we have documented various differences in the way that indigenous Nobe and non-indigenous Western groups conceptualize the natural world. And it's perhaps best illustrated by a story. So a couple years into my fieldwork, I accompanied my friends from the village to their farm on the beach Uh, where people were constructing a shelter. And in the traditional construction of a shelter, the roof is made of thatch, which involves cutting the fronds off a particular sort of palm tree called the penka. And so everyone there was busy cutting fronds from different penka trees. And I, of course, was sitting around doing nothing, which is very standard when I'm in the village. I'm generally incompetent at anything required for daily life. But after a couple hours of watching them, I picked up a machete and decided to try to help. So I was cutting leaves off a particular tree, and I had maybe cut like 
a quarter of the leaves off this tree. And my friend rushed over to me and stopped me. And he had this very pained expression on his face and said, you know, stop. And I said, well, what's wrong? I haven't cut so many leaves that this tree is going to die. And he responded, how would you feel if I cut off all your hair? And so in that moment, I felt like he was making almost a moral pronouncement on my treatment of this plant. So in my mind, I was engaged in a horticultural calculation. I shouldn't cut so many leaves that the plant dies, but there was really no other concern in my mind. I certainly wasn't thinking the tree could be embarrassed or would have like a subpar experience of its own life if I cut too many of its leaves. But this was exactly what my Nobe friend was thinking. And so that episode and many others like it demonstrated to me that when I look at the natural world, including the vegetal world, I tend to see things in a way that does not recognize the complexity of their agency and the complexity of the way other living organisms perceive and respond to their worlds. And I think that is part of the heritage of my culture. I haven't necessarily been taught to think of other living organisms in those terms. And so a lot of my work has been learning first in everyday life from the Nobe how to recognize this perspective. And then empirically documenting that and showing how it might differ across cultures and importantly, how it might also lead to different forms of relationship and decision-making concerning other organisms. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I have that general level of incompetence just in my daily existence. I don't, <laughs> I don't have to go to another country to have that happen. Well, you're very enlightened. <laughs> um, so how, I, I guess, I mean, it, it's interesting thinking about this indigenous community as sort of a, a community partner and what are, I guess, how how did you start interacting with folks in that community? Mm-hmm. How did, like, how did you sort of gain trust? What what have been some of the most exciting things and the most difficult things? Because it, it seems far away and hard, and it's, it would just be interesting to hear sort of more about that component of your work. Yeah. Well, I began working in the community during a fellowship with the Smithsonian. So the Tropical Research Institute under the Smithsonian is headquartered in Panama City. And I was working with a wonderful anthropologist, Fernando Santos Granado. And I wanted to begin conducting fieldwork with an indigenous group in the region. And I was interested at that time in understanding how how cultural variability would manifest in the way people thought about the minds of other organisms or specifically at that point, other humans. So I was very interested in social understanding across cultures. And at that point, Fernando Santos Granado directed me to the Nove community in Panama, um, which has not been as studied, I would say, certainly not as studied in the English literature as other indigenous groups in Panama. So I went, visited several different communities and, excuse me, ended up working in a particular village. And the determining factor for working in this village was not glorious at all. It was simply that I didn't know Spanish at the time. And there was an individual in this community who was trilingual in Spanish, English, and the native Nobere. 
And that was Celino Garcia, who is my collaborator and co-author, and we continue to work very, very closely. So that's how I got um, into the village. I landed there, learned Spanish, and started doing my work. And over the course of time, my research questions evolved very much in concert with those of the community. So for me, it's not very rewarding to come into a community and ask my own questions and do my own things and write my own papers. You could adopt that model, but it seems to be so divorced from the lives of the people you're working with. I want to be able to conduct research that the participants who are joining my research care about. And I want to be able to answer questions that they find relevant to their own lives. So that desire naturally led me to shift my research focus away from social cognition as it is exclusively concerned with humans and adopt a more Nobe-inspired perspective on social cognition writ broadly where the notion of socialization extends beyond humans to include many other organisms. And the term community partner is one that I can't actually presuppose. I would be very honored if you walked into the Nobe village and they described me as their community partner. But that is certainly what I would endeavor to do with my research and also through parallel projects in the community to be actively contributing to what they find relevant and what they find useful. And what what are some of the responses you get from folks when you talk about sort of your research or where papers are going or all the the boring, dreadful things that we do in our normal academic jobs, basically? (laughs) Well, the papers are so boring, I usually leave them on the desk. My my (coughs) co-author, excuse me, Celino Garcia, he of course reads the papers with me and we discuss, we discuss the nitty gritty of how we're going to interpret particular findings and, and that happens between us as collaborators. But when I share results with the community, which is what I do on a regular basis, we buy food, we make a meal and we put up posters and invite everyone to come. And then we sit around and we talk about the findings And I ask people how they interpret the findings, what they think they mean, and what questions they would want to ask next. So the community, I would say, has been formative in directing subsequent stages of my research based on the next questions they would want to ask. For example, a few years ago, several community leaders told me that what I was finding about the way indigenous Nobe conceptualize plants, for example was very interesting, and they wanted to know how other indigenous communities would think about plants. Mm. And so through a series of fortunate events, um, I've come to meet several collaborators who are involved in questions like this, and one friend is doing work with children in a South American indigenous community now, where we will start to have answers to that particular question. Another example of the way that my research has been informed by the community and an illustration of how they receive that work is just very recently, a couple weeks ago, I was in Panama and I shared results from the latest round of research, which had been entirely formed through collaboration with Nobe participants. And that 
was driven by their interest in understanding how different groups on the island use local hardwood species and local thatch roof plants. And so they wanted to understand why particular groups seem to be using these resources in ways that they didn't consider sustainable. But the other groups are very educated in environmental issues, so clearly there seemed to be some difference in interpretation of a sustainable way of interacting with these resources. So we, we are in the process of conducting and analyzing those results, but I shared them with the community just last week. And one finding that came out was that the Nobe, when I, when I shared some of the results, the Nobe told me that, yeah, we think about our buildings and our houses in terms of their role in the ecosystem. We're part of the cycle of nature. So while many foreigners who are present in Panama are advocating for us to transition from our traditional panka thatch roof to a metal zinc roof, we disagree with that pronouncement of a sustainable option because the, the metal roof, after we abandon the house, it becomes toxic for the other organisms around us. But our panka thatch roof becomes part of the food and the nutrients for other organisms after we're done with the house. So it becomes food for termites, which become food for birds. The panka itself decomposes and becomes compost. And what's really interesting is that on this particular question, foreigners who are longtime residents of Bocas del Toro, they see the sustainable option as switching to materials that can be purchased internationally in order to diminish the pressure on the local panka plant. But nobody see the situation, nobody are very aware that the panka plant is scarce right now, but they have a much longer term perspective that is attuned to the role of the building in the ecosystem over many, many life cycles. Hmm. Interesting. And, and do, you, do you ever get pushback from folks about your interpretation of, of sort of their data, basically? Hmm. Not so far, but that is often because their interpretation informs mine. Mm. Yes. Um, so in all of my research, I include questions. So I might be collecting quantitative responses like yes, no, but then I ask people why. So my interpretation of any given result is very much informed by what people are telling me, the reasoning behind their answers. So in that sense, um, the interpretations I give are often quite closely linked to the actual explanatory systems that people have offered me. Yeah, at this point um, in, the, in my interactions with the Nobe community, no one has disputed like one or another interpretation, and often there are multiple interpretations of any given result. Um, where there have been more questions of the best way to proceed is in a parallel project that I do that is actually community-led, and I'm just a participant helping with funding and external resources, and that is the development of a local school to teach the Nobere language and Nobere traditional cultural knowledge to the children. So that project has been very complex and has raised many questions about the best way to go about things. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so thinking sort of to the findings of your research now, what are the kind of 
What are the two or three sort of core findings from your research to date that that you would want people to take away from this? All of my findings come directly from my interaction and learning from the Nobe. So I should say that these aren't my findings to the extent that they're useful and accurate understandings of what I've learned from the Nobe. I would say these are findings from a Nobe perspective. And with that in mind, I could summarize three findings. Um, one would be that it's very important for us in the West to develop an understanding of the way that other organisms are actively relating to their environments and to us. And so to transition from a view that is very human-focused and tends to be absorbed in our, our own little worlds and to look more broadly at the relationships that live around us every day and make our lives possible. Um, another core finding would be that this concerns more pragmatic decision-making. So when we talk about environmental sustainability now, pretty much everyone is aware that our lifestyles, our consumer lifestyles are very demanding and certain changes to behavior need to be made in order to develop more sustainable ways of interacting with the natural world. But what is interesting is that often these decisions are framed as sacrifices. So it's considered a sacrifice for us to use less heat or to live in a smaller house or to fly on airplanes less frequently. And I would say that what I've learned from the Nove is that these Seeing this as a sacrifice is a very impoverished way of viewing the world. And we would be much better served and we would have a much richer existence if we could recognize that actually everything we do is a form of relationship and choosing not to fly as often is a gift. It's a gift that we give to other living organisms and a gift that we give to future generations. And we don't have to view it as a sacrifice. Um, that's part of the beauty of what I've learned from the Nobe and their reliance and valuation of a simple life that recognizes relationship with other living organisms. You asked for a third finding, and I'm going to... Well, you could, you could theorize this last point on multiple levels, but I think the easiest way to summarize it is that we have a lot to learn from indigenous perspectives, and we would all be very well served um, to pursue alternative ways of knowing and understanding our environments through direct interaction and study with other communities. I think indigenous, many indigenous communities are really at the forefront of sustainability and how to move forward. And we could do a lot more to benefit from that and essentially take up an apprenticeship with these other communities. Great. Um, so... What would, last question, so mm -hmm. based on your research, what would be one sort of real world kind of change that you would, that you would like to see? There's never a single answer. And <laughs> I think I, you know, I could work for 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 years and you could ask me the question every year and it would change every year. I hope. So maybe at this point, I would say one real-world change that would be helpful 
is simply for people to pay attention to how their decisions are actually living in relationship with other organisms and to think about the way they decide to use resources or to use luxuries, to think about this in terms of the kind of relationship it embodies towards other living organisms, and not only to think about it in terms of their own cost-benefit calculation. Great. That seems like a very good one. Um, so thanks so much for for your time and for joining us today. It was it was really fun. Um, and hopefully I will learn how to pronounce your name both ways instead of just <laughs> one. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. information about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.